If we're not reading the Bible through Jesus and we're taking everything as equal and giving everything uh, the same weight and taking it at its face value, the Bible's an incoherent text. How can you say, listen to the cries of the poor without looking at what makes them poor? You don't have to believe certain things to be part. The irony is that you can be pro-guns, pro-death penalty, pro-military, anti-environment, and still say you're pro-life. But people get really uncomfortable. It's like they want to have their religion and they want to have their porn. They want to do both. I don't think any form of Christianity deserves to survive and thrive if it doesn't come to terms with the racism of our past. When we really tell the story of Jesus, we find a God who comes to the point where it has all collapsed. If a good teacher is to get a student to get the right answers on the test, and if Jesus was supposed to get us to get the right answer for when we die, then can we just be honest and say, not a good teacher? It is summer, and what better to do with summertime than focus on getting in shape and getting your health in check. Best way to do that is with Angie Niska at Rise Nutrition, who sponsors all of these wonderful Jesus Never Ran podcasts. You can find her on Facebook at Rise Menominee. That is Rise with a Z. Hey friends, great to be with you again. I'm your host, Matt Kinzera. Today, an extremely important conversation that we absolutely need to engage with. We're going to be talking with a past guest, Jess Teresi, about sexual abuse in the Bible and sexual abuse in the church. Jess, you reached out to me because you felt it important that we have a conversation on sexual abuse specific to the church. And so today we're going to do something that is a little bit unique for this podcast, which is we're going to, this sounds strange, but we're going to look in the Bible and, and, and kind of tear it apart a little bit. And then we're going to look at some current events, some things that you're going to cue us in on that are going on right now in our world, because this is just one of those spaces that unfortunately the church has a tendency to handle in ways that actually end up victimizing people all over again. So we're going to talk a little bit about that and maybe find out where the roots of this really are. So Jess, you reached out to me. So give me a little bit of the lowdown of what you're thinking and where we're going today. Yeah. So I, I recently did the sermon with my church. Uh, I did it in April, Sexual Assault Awareness Month, to kind of highlight the way that the church in particular has a difficult time talking about sexual abuse and sexual violence and realizing that there's a lot of opportunity for the church to talk about sexual violence. So it, it seems to be an active decision of the church to sort of ignore the forms of sexual violence. And I realized that even within those stories that we are all very familiar with, these are not hidden stories that we just kind of pull out and randomly talk about. These stories are talked about, but the sexual violence is just glazed over and and sometimes even twisted so that it fits into our purity culture and the purity culture movement that the church really started. And I feel like the seventies or eighties, I can't remember, but they, they really kind of stuck to purity. And then all of a sudden, all of these really important stories in the Bible that I feel like God was trying to convey something with twisted and became linked to power. And so I think that the church needs to start talking about these more. And as people are deconstructing their faith, 
I feel like a lot of people are walking away with the same frustrations that they are not learning the important parts about these stories or seeing consistencies in God and how he's moving or they and she, however you prefer to refer to God is, is moving within our culture and how to kind of move in a direction where if the church says that they want to be the leaders in ending sexual violence, they have to grapple with the sexual violence within the book that they use in order to maintain a relationship or build a relationship with God. So I think it would be fun to talk about that. (laughs) I like how you use the word fun. One of the things that I always say is it seems as if when you go to a church service specific, I'm going to just speak to the evangelical church because that's my, that's what I know. It seems as if you will hear maybe five sermons over and over and over again. And so, you know, we kind of frame this narrative around what we're wanting congregants, people coming to our church to hear. And so consciously or subconsciously, we're able to take any Bible verse and kind of reframe it to work within that narrative and work within that context. But I, like you, am one of those people that would read through the Bible, come to something, whether it was sexual violence or just violence in general. And I really, really have struggled with this because many Christians will say that the Bible is inerrant. And Mm -hmm. If, if that is the belief, then we do have to look at these verses, these passages, these stories, and mm-hmm. really come to terms with them because, I mean, it's, it's hard to glaze over something that is so offensive and so harsh. Mm-hmm. So why don't you start, just give us an example of where we find this in the Bible, and then let's just talk through that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. One of the first stories that I think is really important to talk about is the story of Rahab, because when I, and and I knew to the church world, I mean, I didn't join the evangelical world until my early 20s. I'm now 30, 35, I think 36. You're, I think I just in your 30s. <laughs> my 30s now. So all of this is newish for me. I didn't grow up learning all of these things. So by the time I started learning, I was, I was an adult. So I had the ability to really critically think about the messages that I was receiving. But something that I always heard, no matter what church I went to, no matter what community I was in, was how God can use anybody, anybody to make their, their destiny happen, right? So everything works with the kingdom of God, And one of the statements was, God can even use a prostitute. And this is oftentimes referring to Rahab. And even in, and I can't remember the specific verse, but we we learn later in the New Testament about Rahab that they're talking about it was because of her faith in God that she had all these blessings then happen to her because she was the one that helped Jericho come down and all of that. And the point is always that she was a prostitute. She was prostitute. She was prostitute. And I think what bothers me about that is that the church is very consistent on wanting to eradicate sexual violence within human trafficking. And yet the church has one of the hardest times accepting that prostitution is a form of human trafficking. And if we can't deal with what causes people to either willingly enter into prostitution, then we're never going to be able to solve it. And so... Yeah, because when we when we talk about Rahab specific, and she's often called Rahab the prostitute. That's usually the way that she's referred to. When we hear that, the narrative that is shared within that context is God can even use a sinner as kind of the the context, right? But we don't really know 
what was going on with her. We don't know if that was her own choice or if that was something that was forced upon her. Yet we right. just so quickly put it on as as a sin issue, as we do with you know Mary Magdalene in the New Testament as yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. We'll just put this blanket statement on this blanket idea on it and then move on. Right. Well, and the reality that we also have to understand is that women especially in biblical times, didn't have rights. So the idea that a woman would just make the decision without any other pressures on her to enter into prostitution is just an absurd idea that takes our understanding of today and attempts to apply it to way back when as a way to just ignore the fact that women have for (laughs) centuries tried to have economic stability on their own. And there are thoughts that Rahab was actually sold into prostitution by her family. And so she really didn't have a lot of choice in that. And what I think that that makes us struggle with is that when we look at people today who are in prostitution, while not everybody is trafficked in, and that's important to understand, there is still some economic instability that we have to look at when when we're thinking about this. And so if I'm somebody who you know, is in prostitution, whether or not because I was forced to, because I didn't have any other means of making money, and I walk into a church and that's what they're going to talk to me about, I'm really not going to care about anything that they say, because instead of looking at the story of Rahab as a redemption, and I, I say that I say that loosely because I think redemption can also be a form of gaslighting for people. I don't mean that Rahab needed to be redeemed for her own sin. I mean that isn't it possible that God redeemed her to what she already should have been, but the culture looked at her like she was the worst of the worst. And God is saying, I don't care who you are. I can use you. And the world doesn't get to dictate your worth and your value because I think that God using us to do something incredible, which we can talk about what happened in Jericho, um, but God using us to do something incredible is a redemption for me as a victim of sexual assault, that this isn't about me sinning and my behavior. This is about God saying, I'm with you in this. I'm with you in your healing. And what happened to you happened to you. It doesn't weigh on whether or not you can do something great or have faith or have relationship. And so, I think the church needs to sort of dig a little bit deeper when we're talking about that. And that really moves into how we talk about Bathsheba as a temptress. And I think that it's come out a lot more. I think I'm hearing a lot more people, evangelicals outside of the church, talk about Bathsheba as a victim of sexual assault, uh, as somebody who was forced into a marriage that she wasn't interested in. But I still do hear some mainstream pastors talking about Bathsheba as being a temptress instead of, you know, looking at it in how we would relate today. So if I went to the beach today and I was hanging out in a bathing suit, which mind you, Bathsheba was doing a, a ritual. She was doing an actual cleansing. I went to a beach hanging out in my bathing suit. Maybe I was, you know, naked. There's a lot of opportunity out here in California to go skinny dipping <laughs> on some beaches. And, you know, my husband walked off to go do something. Two guys see me and they decide, hey, I really like this girl. So his friend sends him to me, kills my husband, takes me, kidnaps me, and, you know, forces me into marriage. The world itself, while the purity culture movement may be like, well, she shouldn't have been naked. Majority of people would look at that situation and say, that's horrific. Like she was just out there doing her own thing. And somebody decided to kidnap her with their friends and force her into a marriage and killed her husband. Like 
they would identify with me as a victim. But Bathsheba doesn't get that. And now her whole story is about what she did of a ritual cleansing and some man wanting to take her. So he took her and raped her and she lost her child that she was pregnant with, you know, and that's not talked a whole lot about that. All the trauma that Bathsheba went through for David's sin and lust. And because the church talks so highly of David, this makes it incredibly difficult for us to reconcile the sexual abuse that happens within the church or even outside of it. And we even saw that with big political folks who were accused of sexual assault and supporters would say, well, that's between him and God, or, you know, we got to forgive people or whatever it is, but there's no accountability. So David always gets the, you know, the, the man after God's heart and he was a sinful man, but look at all the great that he did. But it's like, he never really accounted for all of that, that he did. And so we, as the church, don't expect people to account for that today. And so the victims end up being the ones that are supposed to have the accountability. And that's uh, the important thing to note. It's that the the narrative that we're sharing, let's take that story, for example. I mean, he is one of the main people that's talked about in the Bible. And the narrative is exactly what you shared. He's a man who had some struggles, but God still used him. But we just never take into account the extreme level of, of trauma that he also created in that situation and several other other situations and whether consciously or subconsciously that comes into a culture. And so if we're speaking so highly of this man, David, we never once really deal with actually what he did and what he caused. And we never look at it from the other side of the coin. Why wouldn't we? And when sexual abuse comes up in the church or some sort of issue around abuse comes up in the church, we're going to take that same narrative towards that person and we're going to say, okay, we're going to help this person become redeemed, which I agree with you is a, a gaslighting tactic as well. And then we quickly gloss over, especially if it's a woman, we tend to gloss over the trauma that was inflicted to that woman. And almost always there's an undercurrent of the mm -hmm. temptress, almost mm -hmm. always. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, unless you are, and, and I would like to say even unless, but I, I know that usually unless you really fit that box of purity, then you're usually not given the benefit of the doubt as a victim. And there are not many women who can fit inside that box of purity because the box of purity is unbelievably narrow. <laughs> and anything you do, anything you say, everybody has a different definition of what it means to be pure. And so we sort of end up struggling, not really knowing what we can do and that our mere existence as women is tempting to men. And then we teach boys that, that, you know, girls are responsible to make sure that they don't turn you on or that, you know, you don't experience anything, which, which also, you know, moves into the damages of purity culture on men as well. This idea that sex in the flesh is so horrific, but I mean, Jesus was a man and I know that this might <laughs> upset some people, but if he was here to experience flesh and God put me in flesh, then my desire for food, my desire for love, my desire for intimacy, all of that is God designed. So it can't be bad. There may be people who decide that it's bad outside of certain contexts, but in itself, arousal isn't bad. Um, but that is 
attached to the purity movement and it causes so much shame and so much trauma, even if you didn't experience sexual assault, that you can have trauma to unpack in your marriages if you waited for marriage, which is totally fine, where all of a sudden you're just supposed to be able to have sex and not be tempting. Well, what does that even mean? Like my partner is probably going to be aroused by me, but I grew up believing that that was the worst of the worst. How does it all of a sudden become okay now that legally someone can say, this is my spouse? You know? Yeah, you're supposed to like uh, repress all of this sexual desire that you have, especially in as a as a woman. You're supposed to really tone it down, and then all of a sudden you get married, and you're supposed to like become this this mm-hmm. vixen almost. You know, yeah. like overnight, as if that's even possible. And then the challenges that that often causes in relationships has proven to be detrimental to the culture that came up through that. And I like you was I would call myself fortunate that I didn't grow up in that that culture. Mm -hmm. I grew up Catholic. And so I didn't get around that purity culture until I was in my twenties as well. Probably was already married by Mm -hmm. that point, but it definitely, you know, creates a huge issue for sure. And Mm -hmm. and it's a problem without a doubt. Yeah. And then, you know, I think one of the most interesting cases that we see in the Bible is with Tamar and experiencing the sexual abuse. And I can never pronounce her stepbrother's name correctly. So I am not a Bible scholar. (laughs) I work in sexual violence prevention. So I'm just going to own that. But her stepbrother, if you're familiar with the story of Tamar, was consumed with lust for her. And so he tricked her into coming to take care of him and then forced her to have sex with him. Basically, he raped her. But what's interesting about this is that in the dialogue that we see with Tamar and her stepbrother before he actually sexually assaults her, she attempts three different times to get him to not do it. And we often see that in sexual assaults that happen today, but we sort of just gloss over it. And so the first thing that he does is just pleads with her, pleads with him to, you know, to talk with her dad and ask for permission first. And so he's really, she's really trying to say like, no, please just like, there's another way that we can do this. We don't have to do it this way. Because remember at that time, purity was everything because it was the lineage. And so women had to remain virgins until they were married because the line went through the male line. And so any babies and offspring that was connected to money, it was connected to land, it was connected to all these things. And so if you weren't a virgin anymore, you were basically, there was no reason you needed to be here anymore, basically on this earth. And so she was looking at it from that perspective. And we see that happen today with certain instances where uh, victims of domestic violence may say, can you do this instead of doing this? And as a culture, we may have a hard time and be like, well, then you consented to this. And it's this blurry, confusing, gross line that people walk because, well, yeah, I, I did say use a condom or use protection, but that wasn't me consenting to it. It was more so me acquiescing and acknowledging that I don't have power in this, this moment it's going to happen to me, but how can I make it safer for me? So, you you know, women will say, well, I just stopped fighting. And sometimes that's fight or flight or freeze. And you just have no control over what your body chooses to do. Uh, But sometimes women or men will choose. I'm not going to fight. I'm just going to let it happen so that they they go away and I want to survive. Or they know that abuse is going to happen to their kids. And so And I've talked with a lot of women in domestic violence relationships where their spouse is very abusive. They're starting to get abusive to the kids. And so they say, hey, why don't you come in the room? And, you know, they 
they have coerced sex. They have forced sex that was manipulated in order to make sure that their kids are protected. These are still victims of sexual assault and sexual violence. It just doesn't appear the way that our culture and society wants it to, which is walking down a dark road. And even then, why were you walking down a dark road? But I think that's one of the first lessons we can learn in Tamar's situation and how the church has an opportunity to talk about what that looked like, the pleading that she did. And the next thing that she does is attempts to um, hyper-focus on how his reputation is going to be. Uh, So what will happen to him if this happens? How will people think about him and attempting to get to his ego a little bit? Like, if you do this, things could be destroyed for you. Why would you want to do this to me? And we see that happening here too, Uh, especially when guys are super famous. Like, unfortunately, the Me Too movement has created that topic and that dialogue of, well, now you can just take down a man uh, by accusing him of sexual assault, which is just not true because the men who've been taken down have been proven (laughs) beyond a reasonable doubt to have committed lots of sexual assault. Although even with Bill Cosby and his conviction being overturned, the thing that's important that we recognize about that is he's still guilty of committing the sexual assault. He admitted he committed sexual assaults and admitted to how he was charged. It's just that there was an agreement with the past prosecutor that he wouldn't be charged for something. So this is a legality issue. There's still a moral failure from the perspective of of church. We shouldn't miss that. There was still the decision that he made to sexually assault somebody, you know, and so I think that that's, that's equally important. And then the last thing I'll say that we can kind of chat is that she then attempted to get him to care about her and what would happen to her. And so we kind of talked about that a little bit with, you know, her saying, well, what, it's going to be my shame and I'm going to have to be the one to carry this. And unfortunately, victims of sexual assault are the ones that carry the shame. We walk around wondering if I would have done something different. Why didn't anybody believe me? I shouldn't have been wearing what I was wearing. I've talked with women who said they shouldn't have gone to that party. They shouldn't have taken that drink or they should have known they shouldn't have married this person or all of these things. And from a logical standpoint, yes, if you didn't go to the party, you personally would not have experienced sexual assault. But the reason sexual assault happened was because there was somebody there who wanted to sexually assault. So whether or not it was you or somebody else, it would have happened. And I think as a culture, we need to recognize that. So Tamar's stepbrother had multiple opportunities to change his mind and continued to choose that what he wanted was what he was going to do. And then as soon as he did it, he threw her away. And that's that's oftentimes what we see happen. And if we don't talk about in the church, teaching men how to handle their sexual arousal, teaching men to understand that women exist or whoever they're sexually attracted to, because sexual assault happens within LGBT communities for sure. Uh, But it's not as often that women are sexually assaulting women in sexual assault relationships that are same sex. So is it really about what women are wearing or is it really about the way that we are raising people Um, And that our dialogue within the church that wants to talk about purity isn't willing to acknowledge that A, sex is completely fine and it is completely normal and is completely healthy and it can be very enjoyable. And B, you are responsible to deal with your sexual arousal, whether or not you see somebody who arouses you or you don't and you just fantasize. Because most boys that I grew up with 
were able to picture girls naked because they saw something in a magazine. <laughs> like it doesn't, I don't need to be naked for you to think about what I might look like. And I might not even look like what you think. And that's not the point. The point is you see something in your head that you want, and then you decide that you have a right to take it. And the church tells all of these stories about the women in the Bible who experienced horrific sexual assault and trauma. And we, we never acknowledge that these are traumatic stories. And that's just heartbreaking to me that there's this opportunity to call us in and invite us in and tell our stories. And they always flip the script on us. Yeah. So when we look at it, so if this conversation is going to matter at all, it has to have some sort of practical implications that we can offer, right? Because at some point we have to get in there and and some something has to change in the culture that is happening in most churches. So from a practical standpoint, say I was a pastor, say I'm a pastor listening to this conversation right now. What are some things from your perspective that pastors, church leaders, church congregants, even what could we start doing to really start making the change that is necessary so that we're not a part of the problem, but we're actually a part of the solution? Because I think we have a great opportunity. We have these biblical stories that we can use as a great opportunity here. We're just not using it. So what are some practical things that we could start doing? Yeah. I think the first thing is we have to separate out the uh, sexual violence aspect of purity culture with the wanting to remain pure and not be sexually active. So a lot of times in churches, even in, you know, uh, faith-based universities and schools, the messaging system is that any type of sexual activity, even if consensual, which is actually written in a few of these bylaws or whatever, that's wrong. And they they weigh it at the same. And we need to recognize that they're not the same. Two people choosing without any force or coercion or manipulation to engage in sexual activity is not the same thing as somebody else forcing their will upon another person. And so once we can separate that out, then we realize that you have to make sure as a church, you have the proper skills in order to handle the sexual abuse that happens within your church and know how to support people. And so that means reaching outside of the church and faith communities, because unfortunately faith communities, I'm not saying none of them do. I think that as we have more people who are deconstructing their faith, who are acknowledging their own past sexual abuse that they've had, there's going to start to be some opportunity for churches to have faith-based programs with sexual violence. But I think that they need to reach out to those organizations or people like me who can come in and help and, and take a look at what policies that they have and how are they training people to interact with victims of sexual assault in their congregation. Because if I think that sexual assault is something eerily similar to a consensual sexual relationship. I'm not going to respond to a victim of sexual assault correctly. And so how we think personally about sexual assault will impact our ability to provide support to people. And the hard work, and if you've listened to my past podcast with you, it's <laughs> very much the, the same thing is the hard work begins with us unpacking our own ideas and our own understanding of what sexual violence is and what sexual assault looks like so that we can come at each circumstance of sexual assault, hearing the victim tell their story and what happened to them and accept that this is what happened to them 
And therefore we need to look at this as a sexual violence relationship. And then I think the other thing is as a pastor unpacking how you have previously talked about Bathsheba because you most likely have. And how have you talked about David and start looking not for the men of the Bible who are victims, because <laughs> that tends to be how people are spoken about when we talk about the Bible, because Christians can oftentimes look at themselves as a victim mentality and that they're being persecuted, which in the United States, they're not. And so if you're constantly telling these stories from a persecution standpoint, then you are unwilling to see the moral failures of these people and just say them. It doesn't have to be you know, supported by, oh, and then God did something great for them, or they were failure and God still loved them. But how can these stories speak to the people in your congregation who've experienced violence at the hands of people who have power? How can you as a pastor say something like that so that I would feel like this is a church I want to be a part of because I'm not being ignored and I'm not being unseen and I'm not being judged based on my own previous experiences. And so we have to change how you're talking about these things and choose to talk about sexual violence because it's easy to just pass it up. Last question. What's your hope as we move forward in regards to the church and handling sexual abuse better? How would you like this to see moving forward? And what is your hope for the church moving forward specific to this issue? Well, I think we're seeing a reckoning happening within the church. And I I felt this way for years. I felt that God was really calling back the church uh, because I think the church was pulled away. And I I attend a church. Uh, I really love my church. I think it's great. It's hyper-focused on LGBT, social issues people who are experiencing homelessness, like it is social justice, like in it, (laughs) I love it. But it took me a while to feel comfortable going to a church like that because I felt like I was sinning by leaving the evangelical world. Um, And so my hope is, is that as more people are deconstructing, they realize that there's still a place that God is moving them to, as opposed to it's just going to like go away and then we're going to have pure chaos. Because I think like you said, when people are together, really great things can happen. And so I think the more people who are willing to stand up and speak out against it, I think it's really important for people who haven't experienced sexual assault to comment. I think it's important for men to speak up and say, my church is not doing enough to combat sexual violence, to combat the violent nature of purity culture, that that's going to be really important. And I think looking at your church and understanding how you respond to sexual violence, how often you talk about it, do you only ever talk about it in the context of Fifty Shades of Grey and pornography? Uh, do you talk about it even within the intimate relationships? Do you talk about coercion and manipulation in the dating world? And how are you talking about sexual violence prevention, teaching the importance of consent, bodily autonomy? These are all things that I would hope the church would start to develop plans with and and do it in a healthy way and stop pushing against the teaching of children these important issues um, and digging deeper into their own garbage (laughs) uh, within their church history and not being afraid of it and not thinking that, well, if we talk about these things, then people are going to be turned off about God. No, people are being turned off by God because of what you're doing about these stories. These stories aren't necessarily a turnoff. If I have the ability to talk with other people and not just hear my pastor say, you're thinking about this wrong. Uh, You shouldn't be thinking about God this way because clearly God didn't do it. Instead, I can go to my pastor 
I've gone to my pastor a lot about David. <laughs> I've gone to my pastor a lot about Paul. I'm not a fan of Paul. And I've never once heard her say, you're not being a really good Christian if you can't do this. Instead, she's like, yeah, I feel that way too sometimes. And uh, here's a space for you to complain about that and talk about that and process that with me because it's confusing. They don't have to have the answers, but they do have to be together with each other. And so my hope is, is that that's where we'll go. We'll start seeing a church that actually is living like Jesus lived and loving the way that Jesus loved because I don't have a great relationship with Jesus because of all the harm that has been done to me by the evangelical church specifically. But when I look at the way that I see Jesus operating with women in the Bible, I'm like, that's, yes, that's what I want. I I want someone like that in my life. And if you aren't being like that in my life, then you're not being Jesus. Hopefully we'll get there and we'll see more happening with sexual abuse survivors having a place in the church other than just hiding in the shadows. For more on Jess Teresi, you can go to her website, which is jessicateresi.com. I'll put a direct link into the show notes of this episode. And she's doing some incredible work. I'd love for you to stay connected with her. Please share this episode with anyone that you think needs to hear it. And of course, if you want to support this podcast, simply subscribe to it, give it a five-star rating, and write a review. Let's keep this conversation going.